Hey everybody, I did a podcast this week with a dear friend of mine named Mark Sanchez, and I just grabbed some audio off of his show because I wanted to share it with you. In this podcast, we cover really what is the Christic or the New Covenant, what does it mean for us today, but then we also cover how do we bridge the gap between the disparity that we see between the life of Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, specifically within the context of the Old Mosaic Law. If you've ever had confusion about the scriptures, especially regarding that, you're going to want to listen to this podcast today. So let's dive straight into it. There are certain people that are talking about the questions that people are asking but are afraid to ask. And I found that you've done that in a really great way. You know, a lot of people will get out online and I've done it. I've been really guilty of it. Um, Got out there and, you know, started going after the questions, uh, but not doing it in a way that is palatable and relational to the person's personal experience with God. Mm, I like that. And I think that, you know, remember it was probably 2016. Uh, I mentioned this guy's name and people will freak out, but I was in, I was in uh, Boston and was, uh, had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Rob Bell. And, you know, he was right on that thing with Love Wins. And it was, yep. like, um, and we, we, we kind of sat there for a few minutes. I didn't have a lot of time. And, you know, he, he just looked at me and he said, you know, people are asking questions and they're hungry to know more but few people dare to ask those questions publicly and then um give them an alternative and so i've noticed with (laughs) with with you and i love what you're doing with one specific word you're talking about the christic covenant and i love that um you know because it's not a covenant between god and man yeah that's that's the whole point and there's so much confusion around that uh where people are you know they're kind of like i believe in the new covenant but then they just struggle to understand kind of the whole thing uh particularly as it relates to their personal struggle and their story and um i don't know if you want to kind of elaborate a little bit on where you've been going with that yeah, yeah, you know, the Christian covenant is just another way of saying the new covenant in Christ. But what I've noticed, in, in, especially in the Western Christian church, is that even though, especially in evangelicalism, they'll say, yeah, we believe in the new covenant, what that means, as far as I can d- deduce, is that they've received new covenant salvation by grace through faith, but they still live everything else old covenant with God. So it's almost like for a lot of people, the new covenant was just an addendum to the old covenant because, you know, the Bible says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's actually not what it says. Hebrews says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, you know, I maintain this reality that Jesus is who God has always been. And the reason Jesus, you know, came, of course, above and beyond saving us, you know, from sin, death, hell, and the devil is to reveal the Father to show us who God really is and what he's really like. So Hebrews 1, 3 says, you've seen me. He's an exact representation of the Father's nature. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and I am the Father are one. So to to understand that God um, looks like Jesus is is such a huge, huge um, kind of a paradox for people who have a difficult time with 
understanding what the new covenant accomplished, which is to shut down completely once and for all everything related to the old covenant in terms of negativity. Um, now, what I mean by that is the Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, but it doesn't say anything about being redeemed from the blessings of the law. So he shut down the curses, but now the blessings are given to us in grace. And so we have everything in, in pertaining to life and godliness because of Christ, because of the grace of Jesus Christ provided to us and for us. We have access to all of it. The Holy Spirit has been given to us without measure. But the reality of the old covenant was uh, uh, sowing and reaping. And you miss, you messed up. You got the hammer of judgment falling, you know, on you, um, and uh, and that would you know drop on an entire nation or people group. But all judgment was wrapped up in Christ. He absorbed all judgment on the cross. And so now you have Jesus saying in John five twenty two, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. In uh, John eight fifteen, Jesus says, "You guys judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anybody." So uh, God could sit on the judge's you know, bench and with the gavel and the robes and the whole thing, but he's retired basically the entire thing within the context of the cross to bring us into a place of, of reconciliation, reconciled rest and union with the Father. And to understand the totality of what that encompasses for us, uh, there's an invitation to that. It's not forced upon us. It's available to us. So the invitation to step into the reality of what the new covenant actually accomplished means we have to let go of some lies we believed about God, um, some some concepts that were part of, let's say like this, the terms of engagement under an old covenant system with God when people didn't actually want to hear his voice, but they wanted to claim his name. And so uh, that's why you had law. You know, you don't in, in a marriage, you don't call the lawyer when things are good. You get the law involved when things have gone south. And now you operate by formula and principle rather than presence and love. Jesus, you know, full of grace and truth, comes to restore us back to the union with God, reconciled union with a God who by his very nature is love, and now gives us his own spirit so that surrendered to the Holy Spirit, we can learn to love like Jesus loves. I'll give you an example uh, in, uh, in the Old Covenant. In the middle of the old, uh, old Covenant, you have all this sowing and reaping, but there's these beautiful little lines that are just sort of tucked in there. And one day, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, a lot of people in Western Christianity have taken those statements and made them their church mission statement. Um, I, it's, it's nice, but Jesus wasn't being asked about what is the best uh, that, that you have available for us in this life and the ages to come? He wasn't being asked that. He was being asked, what is the best the law can do? And the best the law could do was love God and love others like you. In other words, to the best of your ability. But later on, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. And this new commandment is Jesus introducing a progressive invitation to an increasing measure of intimacy that would bring us into an awareness of something that we have previously been blind to. So he says, a new commandment I give you. And this is what he says, love one another as I have loved you. So here's the contrast. Under the old covenant, the best you, you can do is to love God and love people like you. You love like you, but under the new covenant, you love like Jesus. Now, I can't do that in my own strength and in my own power. 
And everything under the old covenant was done in your own strength and your own power to prove that you can't do something independent of God to impress him or any of that. So in the new covenant, I have to live by union or I'm going to end up working somehow to, you know, as the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If we stop that statement right there, then we're back in old covenant effort all over again. But that, that verse goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. There's so many times we even read uh, in the New New Testament things that um, we, we like cut off scriptures because if we keep reading, they'll sound too good to be true. Like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How about we add verse 24 in because it's a continuing thought and it changes everything. Says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and have freely been justified by the grace that is given in Christ Jesus. So verse 24 tells us that the same all that has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is the same measure of people who have been justified freely by the grace of Christ. It's not there to prove our sinfulness. It's there to prove that in spite of our sinfulness, justified innocence is our inheritance. Um you could say it like this, that the, the new covenant, the Christic covenant, the covenant of Christ was established on better promises than the old ever gave us. So there's promises that we have access to now that those who are under the old covenant system were blind to. They had Jehovah. We have Jesus. They have distance. We have union. The di difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is proximity and intimacy. Now God is not uh, wholly distant, uh, and we're unholy humanity cowering down here somehow trying to work to get closer to God. We have been invited to be, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, seated in heavenly places with Christ. So we are in Christ right now, present tense, in the Spirit, seated in and with Him. That changes everything. Yeah. Now, you look at the church right now, I mean, I go all over the place and I hear people like cry in their worship songs, in prayer, in effort, crying out, either for God to show up here and fix stuff, or I want to get closer to God. I'm trying to get closer to Him. Like, you're in Him. How much closer can He be? He's in you. How much closer can you get? The only thing we can grow in, in terms of closeness, is an awareness of what we have access to closeness in terms of intimacy, but not proximity. It's like there's, there's so, so I see like constantly I'm seeing old covenant expressions within the body of Christ 2000 years after the cross. And it's, it's honestly futility. It's like, it's like jumping on a hamster wheel of religious effort that, that takes you absolutely nowhere but back to a place of judgment, guilt, and shame, because you can never do enough, be enough, uh, accomplish enough. You always think, oh, I, I, there's, I missed out on it. Somebody else has gone farther than me. But, you know, in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. So that puts us all on an equal playing field. So you would pull your phone out and check your sin balance. It's zero because of what Christ did. That that means that I have the same measure of righteousness as Jesus, which is why I can be called the righteousness of God in Christ. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Christ. So living a new covenant union with the Lord is operating in complete surrender. 
to the finished work of the cross, what Jesus accomplished, and then living, I would say, the finished work that Jesus spoke of before the cross, where he says in uh, John 17, 4 and 6, he talks about, uh, I finished the work, Father, you gave me to do by glorifying your name on the earth. I've revealed you, that kind of thing. So if as he is, so are we in this world. And um, if, if um, uh, as the Father sent me, I sent you, he said. So same mission, same purpose, to reveal the heart of the Father, to show the nature and the character of God. If I don't clearly know the nature and the character of God, what am I representing? I'm going to represent something, maybe not wrong, but lesser than what is actually available. And Jesus represented accurately, perfectly, the nature and the character of God. We have to do the same. We do the same thing. We're challenged to, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit to do the exact same thing in our lives. And so when we tell people God's about to come and drop the hammer of judgment on you, I'm like, whoa, time out. He hasn't done that in 2,000 years to a collective people group or, you know, sent a prophet saying, oh, you broke this, you messed this. There's, there's, there's no law left to, to, to break here except for the, the law of uh, the spirit of life in Christ that has set me free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8. That's the new covenant, new law. So uh, we live, I, I mean, I could go on like this, you know, you know me, Mark, I go on like this for, for, for months. I mean, this, this is an endless, endless well of goodness. And, and that's what we've got coming ahead. Like um, uh, last thought, e- Ephesians 2. Uh, here's the last day's message, right? People talk eschatology and end times and all this stuff. It's like, okay, I, I, none of us can prove the future. A lot of people have some real educated guesses out there. Right. And, but the reality is it's impossible to prove the future. We're all just guessing. But I can tell you that the Bible is pretty clear on what is to come from Ephesians chapter 2 that says that God being rich in mercy with the love with which he loved us, um, uh, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive, seated together in heavenly places with Christ, raised us up together with him. And then it says, so that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace. Now that right there tells me everything I need to know about not just the age I'm in, but the age to come and the one after that and the one after that. If there are a multiplicity of ages to come, he's not going back to an old covenant system. He's not going to change the new covenant reality of what Christ did. He's not going to overturn the work of the blood of the cross. But what he is going to do is completely blow our mind with the surpassing riches of his grace. So the goodness that we see now is getting better and better and better and better. It's not that God is getting better. It's that we're beginning just now to believe in the goodness of the Lord and put that goodness on display so he can be represented in his people accurately. Absolutely. You know, you were talking about all that, and it's like it's it's almost like we're rediscovering the beauty of this message. The number one question I get asked all the time, how do you bridge the gap from, you know, the God that, uh, supposedly killed all these people because David numbered the troops to, sure. you know, this Jesus who um, shows grace to a Canaanite woman, which was the most offensive type of person he could have ever shown grace to in that particular audience. And that is kind of one of the questions mm-hmm. uh, people are that are interested maybe in learning more about who this God is have. And what would you say to that? Yeah, I love this question because it it gives us a chance to really draw a a sharp contrast between the terms of engagement uh, between the Old Covenant and what we have access to in the New. 
Um, you got to kind of go back to the beginning of the Old Covenant in Exodus 19. And uh, it's where God has delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. For 430 years, they've grown up in slavery and oppression in Egypt. Now they've been delivered. They're out in the wilderness. God brings them to the mountain. And he says in Exodus 19 uh, to Moses, he says, You see what I did to the Egyptians? I bore you up on eagles' wings to bring you as... And then, then he says this phrase. He says, To bring you as kings and priests, a kingdom of priests, unto myself, for all the earth is mine. So, you know, God's dealing with a planet that wants nothing to do with him, with this, for, except for the sake of the remnant uh, children of Abraham who at least had the tradition of grandpa passed down, you know, passed down to him. And so, so God comes to him and says, essentially, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal that you are kings and that you are priests. And I'm going to invite you into a place of union with me. Uh, you guys in? Oh, I'm basically, I'm going to start something with you. That's actually going to spread to the entire earth. You guys in? Uh, that's essentially what God is saying. And at first the people say yes, but then they get afraid and they, they won't come up to the mountains. The, that's the, the phrase there. God says that, you know, when you hear the trumpet sound, come up or Allah up to me. So they hear the trumpet sound. The Bible says the trumpet grew louder and louder and louder, but the people won't move. They, and, and God is uh, now going to, have to flip covenants on these people because they don't want actually to have a relationship with God. They want to claim him, in other words, as, as their deity, because everybody's got a deity, right? They want to claim him as their deity. They just don't want to actually have a relationship with him. It's, and this is the thing. Everybody wants God for what he does for you. So if God is only tapped for what he can do or not do, then you end up with a relationship that is all based on, entirely based on sowing and reaping. And so what they're initially invited into technically is called a grant covenant. It's the same thing God gave to Abraham. You know, I'll be your God. You be my children, you be my people, your kings, your priests. We're going we're gonna to have this amazing revelation, life of union together. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to do something in you. It's going to be an example to the whole world. All the earth is mine. So I'm going to invite all people in but we're going to begin with you, right? And so, um, so you know, you you have the people say in Exodus chapter twenty, verse nineteen, they go, uh, you know, we don't ever want to hear God speak again. Like he's super scary. We don't we don't want him to talk anymore. And um, and Moses responds and goes, you guys, don't understand. God's doing this to test you so that you would not sin. And the word sin is the Hebrew word chata, which means to lose yourself. In other words, he's trying to he's trying to give you a revelation of who you really are. He's trying to convince you that you're kings and priests, but you guys are going to hold on to a false identity. In other words, if you reject this, you're holding on to an identity that says you're not worthy or that that um, that God is mean and angry and terrifying. And so, what they end up with is a legal system of sowing and reaping, and they exchange a grant covenant for a kinship covenant, and the kinship covenant. Basically, is uh, you put uh, you put rules down on paper, and the, the two parties have the rules. And if one party breaks the rules, the other party is legally responsible to be the punisher to bring correction to the guilty party. Well, God's never guilty, so he ends up looking like uh, you know the the policeman or the the punisher constantly. And and yet, 
that was not God's intention. That's not what God invited them into. But when the people said, and this is what most people miss when it comes to the Old Covenant, when the people said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, God, we don't ever want to hear you talk again. God actually honored that request for the next 1,300 years. He speaks individually to prophets who are willing to hear his voice, but he doesn't speak corporately again for 1,300 years until Jesus goes into the waters of baptism at the Jordan River under the hands of John the Baptist. When he comes up out of the water, God, for the first time in 1,300 years, speaks corporately again. Now we're in a new day. Okay, so this this is a this is a uh, this thirteen hundred year period that takes up, you know, a massive chunk of the scriptures, um, good portion of the Bible that has been used to define the nature and the character of God, but it's not for that purpose. That portion of scripture is a revelation of what happens to us when we reject the voice of the Lord in our lives. We end up becoming confused, not just about ourselves, but we become confused about who God is too. And so there's a lot of things in the scripture that are attributed to God that he had nothing to do with. Uh, for example, uh, and this is, you can you know find this all over the Bible, but I'll give you just one example. Uh, when Job has his experience, he has a couple of friends that come and sit down with him and they, they tell him all kinds of things about God, what God is like, why God is doing what he's doing, and they... Uh, just ramble on about all about God, as if they know, personally know, a lot of these things about God. This is why God's punishing you. This is why God's doing this, why God's doing that. At the end of the book of Job, Job 42, 6, God comes to Job, or God comes to Job and he says to Job, Job, I'm angry with your friends because they have been speaking about me what is not true, or they have been telling lies about me. The importance of that scripture is staggering because the things that Job's friends said about God are recorded in the Bible. Now, people will say, wait, does that mean that the Bible isn't true? No, I believe 100% that Job's friends said what they said. And I think that the Bible recorded accurately their thoughts and their words. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all their thoughts and their words were true. And this is God, literally God himself, in the book of Job, telling us, heads up, there are things that are recorded about me, things that people think about me, or things that people have attributed to me in the Bible that aren't true. Now, that opens up a whole world of possibility now. So then what I end up with is not a rejection of the Old Testament, Right. I I actually have to grab a hold of the Old Testament, but I have to I have to grab a hold of it for, for what it is. It's not a revelation of the nature and the character of God. The Old Testament is, and specifically the Old Covenant from Exodus 19 to Jesus' baptism. That period of time is one gigantic question to which Jesus is the answer. So when we look at the scriptures to reveal God. I love my, one of my favorite quotes that I ever heard Bill Johnson say is, any revelation that you ever have of God, even from the Bible, any revelation that you ever have of God that you cannot substantiate and validate in the life of Christ, you have reason to question. So Jesus is the clarity. It's not a, what about the God of the Old Testament you know, versus Jesus? No, no, no. Jesus is the clarity of the intention of the nature of God to, to uh, redeem us by the sacrifice of himself. 
Under the old covenant, you're sacrificing for a variety of things, but it's all a representation of your effort. Under the new covenant, God becomes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So we have, we have no more sacrifices left for sin. That's Hebrews chapter 10. No sacrifices are left for sin. You don't make any more sacrifices for sin. Right. Um, you, there's, no, there's not even any more sacrifices for the good stuff. Like, like people also sacrifice to worship God. Jesus is the end of all sacrifice, which means all of our obligations to do anything for God, including the good stuff, are completely dealt with. So now, all of our worship is reduced down to one motivation. All duty has been taken out of the way. And the only motivation for doing anything for God is love. Surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord from a heart of love. That's it. And when we live like that, then love becomes our motivator. That's when we find the power of God actually moving through us. A lot of religions out there have um, duty-based evangelism right? that doesn't produce power. It produces converts, and it actually makes disciples to a system of religious effort that appeals to the pride in the heart of man. Yeah. But to know the new covenant and to know Christ is the death of all ego. It's the death of all pride because 100% my salvation is based upon Christ alone and not me. 100% my acceptance to God is based, my reconciliation, all of that is based on Christ alone and not me. So my entire life is lived just in gratitude for what he's done. And it also makes it impossible for me to judge uh, somebody who, you know, let's say they, they're just evil their entire life and at the 11th hour of the day, boom, they're in the kingdom. Yeah. I, you know, it's like, I, I have no place to judge anybody anymore, you know? So, um, yeah, it's the, the, the difference between the God, rep God represented within the old covenant system and God represented in Jesus is the difference between God in a box and God let loose, right? God in a box was the Ark of the Covenant stuck in the Holy of Holies, you know, in a temple and, and engaging with people purely on the basis of the constriction and confinement of rules and when jesus said it is finished and the curtain tore you know suddenly you have god let out man let in and all the, the boxes are gone and now god in freedom right has has the uh the expression toward humanity of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, or Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of God himself, the ramifications of which are, are that he takes away, annihilates, and completely does away with the sin of the world. That enormity of goodness is just scratching the surface of what the gospel even represents. And 2,000 years after, after the cross, we are barely believing it. I think part of our Achilles heel in theology is trying to draw theological conclusions all the time. Right. And and what I like to do is basically just lift the limits. And so I, that gets me a lot of labels. You know, I get labeled, you know, are you a universalist? You're, you're you know, uh, you believe you, there's, you know, 
every road leads to God and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, no, not at all. You know, but if people ask specific questions, I don't mind talking about all this stuff and just and helping to define, you know, that um, we, we our identity in Christ is is family. It's kingdom. It's 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 to transcend, uh, transcend is ists and isms and and step into the reality of sonship. Yeah. And, you know, sonship changes a lot. You know, that's when, when the Bible says in Romans 8, we've received the spirit of adoption. You know, uh, th that that First uh, Corinthians one thirty, we're in Christ by His doing. You know that that choosing from Him toward us as humanity. It's like the question I have is, how much do we choose that that's true? I mean, how, how much do we um, choose to believe that that's actually true? There are promises tucked away within the Roman road of evangelicalism that I grew up with that went beyond my understanding. And that's what the Lord's drawn me into is, it's not that I ignore the other scriptures. I preached those for, for most of my life, the first part of my first half of my life. But this, this section of scriptures that unveils his goodness, Mark, I just, it grips me because I didn't know, I didn't get it, you know, for years. And there's paradoxes in here. This is where, this is why I say, you know, people say, you know, you're, you're like a mystic. And I'm like, well, I do embrace mystery. You know, um, God is light, but I found him in the shadows. You figure that one out, you know? You know, like, you're, I love your story. I mean, the, I, I know the brutality of the things that you went through and, and all, but to say that you, you were in a homeless shelter and found God moving, working, loving those people within them, that's finding God in the shadows, right? Right. Yeah. I remember flying back one time from <clears throat> from Reading and I was out in California. And at that time, I was just hammering. We're not under the law. We're not under the law, which is all true. Yeah. And I was on the plane, you know, listening to music and my earbuds back then when you still plugged them in. Um, <laughs> I felt like a whisper in my heart. And I felt like the Lord asked me, he said, Mark, what are you going to preach when a generation actually doesn't believe they're under the law? <laughs> I, I, it was like and and what i'm finding is like as i'm listening to this thing unfold watching and you know just hearing different people's articulation of the gospel i'm realizing that there's even so much more like you're talking about than we've ever realized uh, oh my goodness yes you know of this beautiful good relationship you know if all we ever have is the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And that's all we ever know. It's enough, you know, yeah. like, and that he's not given up on anyone or anything. You know, the people that we deem the most unredeemable, he's working to reconcile everything in and through their life. And sometimes through fire, whole nother conversation, but that's, that's right. Fire. Right. Fire of his love, you know, that it's something that, you know, um, consumes, but doesn't destroy, you know, and yes, I'm, you were talking about, what I went through, you know, what I found on the other side of it is, you know, you remember, I don't know if you ever read anything, uh, Thomas Merton, my history mm -hmm. in Christianity, uh, initially, um, you know, my first up until high school, I was in a Catholic school. And so we studied a lot of theology and, you know, I was really immersed in the mystics and St. Francis. It was a Franciscan order. And there's that statement, and I can't remember the roadies on. It was when Merton had his like awakening. He saw everyone and everything is connected in one. And, mm. 
you know, my experience through all that pain I went through made me realize that I am not separate from anyone and God is not separate from anyone, but that he really is in all things and through all things. And beautiful, you know, it's, it, it, it caused a lot of judgments to fall off, but the greatest judgment was against myself. And yeah, this, this idea that somehow God got some kind of pleasure from my religious fervency when really he, you know, he's not displeased with it. And of course he uses it, um, but he's working through it to get us to something greater. He'll almost let us work ourselves into a fever pitch to show us that it doesn't work, you know, (laughs) run on the treadmill long enough till we're so tired, we fall down and then finally just fall headlong into the grace of God. And come on, um, you know, it was one verse that that got me through and it's you know in the psalms or song of songs our song of solomon says that um, my beloved is mine and his desire is for me and it was like mm. i recognized that god's desire of all desires his only thought that what he thinks about if he woke up and he goes to sleep which i don't know if he does or not that i am constantly on his mind and his greatest desire is that i would know how deep, how wide, and how far his love is for me and for everybody else on this planet. And so, you know, it changes our politics. It changes our evangelism. It changes our marriages, changes how we raise our children. But most of all, it allows us to enjoy life, Bill, you know, yeah. Yeah. to see beauty and to embrace it and be hopeful. And so, yeah, man, you really you really hit on some things. I'm going to have to actually go back and listen to it. I love what you brought out out of Exodus and then later into Job. I had not thought about it that way. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I would say to anybody who's listening to this, um, you know, I, I said something a little bit earlier that I don't know, I feel like I'm resonating and, and it maybe is going to hit with somebody that's listening about finding God in the shadows. And there's a, I think a lot of us find ourselves occasionally, you know, David said in Psalm 23, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil fear with me. And it reveals that, you know, you can, you can be a, a servant of the Lord, you know I mean? To know God, to have an intimate relationship with the Lord. And you still, we still find ourselves facing moments of disappointment, facing moments where we feel like we've been forsaken. Even if we haven't, we still feel like it. Uh, You know, we're always in the light, but we don't always perceive that we're in the light. So sometimes it feels like we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And, and, you know, I would say a person knows that they're there when there's a greater awareness of the darkness. And that could even be, you know, a minister that's just fixated on preaching constantly against sin or seeing the devil around every corner or so just overcome with the evil that's happening in the world. It's another form of being in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, but, you know, there, if we're willing to, to see and to know his goodness, we find the awareness that the light of the world is actually walking with us. And, and when I came to the realization that the light of the world can actually stand in the shadows with me, uh, then, then I realized, you know, if he will find, he finds me where I am, you know, and, and it's, it's not an issue of my path to God. It's, you know, it's God is relentless in his pursuit of us. And, and then I realized how worthy, you know, we are to, to be everything, 
not just become, but be everything that he says we can be. So if a person is listening to this and they find themselves stuck in the shadows, just know that the light of the world is standing with you in the valley, but he doesn't leave you there. And if you're willing to take a journey with him, he'll walk you out. And, uh, you know, I think of, you know, the Holy of Holies was just a room until the presence of God entered into it. And now in Christ, that same presence that made the holy place holy lives in us. So what does that make us, you know? I mean, the average person under the law couldn't even get near the Holy of Holies. And now in Christ, the presence of the King of glory, the light of the world, lives in us and makes us the temple of the Holy Spirit, makes you the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's, it, that that mind-blowing revelation alone. I mean, you talk about, like, what what do you preach when, um, when, when everybody believes that they're not under the law anymore? Okay, this right here. It's like... What does it look like to be the Holy of Holies, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit of God? That, that identity of being the dwelling place of God, being the Ark of the New Covenant, the carrier of the glory of God, Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church. That revelation and what that means for us and that what that means uh, for how we interact with this world, we're going to explore that for eternity. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a great question. I love that. What what would you preach if everybody suddenly believed they weren't under the law anymore? I, I think I think I'd just draw. Well, this is what I'm preaching all the time now: is drawing people to a revelation of what does it look like to live enjoying life in reconciled union with the Father knowing there's no distance and separation between you and God. That's, that's, that changes everything. Union changes everything. Well, thanks so much for listening today. We've come to the end of our time, and I hope what has been shared today has been encouraging and enlightening for you. My prayer is that it imparts a love for the Scriptures to your heart and you study the Bible for yourself. Uh, you can get some great Bible studies at BillVanderbush.com. Go to the e-course page and uh, download the study on Hebrews, Ephesians, and James. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. And at BillVanderbush.com, check the schedule page and see where we're going to be in your area. If you're in the neighborhood, come on by and let's have a conversation. I'd love to meet each and every one of you. God bless you. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.